Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host Jasper at JasperCH on Twitter and this week I'm very honoured to be joined by the wonderful Dr Sam Friedman uh, who is Associate Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics commissioner of the government's social mobility commission and co-author of the class ceiling why it pays to be privileged which is a fantastic book and it's what we're going to be talking about today on the podcast uh so sam uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast thank you very much for the invitation so um as a sort of introduction to listeners who haven't read the class ceiling could you just give a quick overview of what the book is about and what exactly you mean by the term the class ceiling Okay, yeah, so basically um, the book is, I suppose, um, most broadly um, could be described as about the long shadow that our backgrounds cast over our life outcomes uh, in this country. Um, And I suppose more specifically, it's about um, how those backgrounds tend to play out in our most prestigious occupations. Um, So when we look at who gets both in, but then also who gets on in a range of different elite professions in the UK, um, the book is is interested in, in how class backgrounds are implicated in both of those processes. Uh, And unsurprisingly, the results are, are pretty stark. Not only are those from working class backgrounds um, very sort of statistically unlikely to make it into our top professions, only about 10% of those from working class backgrounds do. But I suppose the real kickoff point for the book is that we find that even when they do make it into those professions, um, they go on to earn, on average, about 16% less than their colleagues from uh, more privileged, uh, professional and managerial middle-class backgrounds. Um, and I suppose, in a way, the book kind of opens with that idea of a, of a class pay gap um, as kind of trying to, I suppose, move... Um, our understanding of pay gaps on um, a little bit from what we know about already about gender and um, ethnicity um, and then I suppose a lot of the book is d- dedicated to, to answering the why question um, so we go into a number of different large organizations um, uh, Channel 4 um, in television, a big accountancy firm, an architecture practice um, and try to find out well in a in a uh, in a sort of large organizational setting how does this pay gap play out and this brings me to the your main question um, the title of the book um, what we come to understand that's driving the class pay gap is not so much that people are doing exactly the same work and getting paid less for it when they come from working class backgrounds but that generally those from working class backgrounds uh, tend to struggle to make it to the top positions, the positions that then clearly pay the most. Um, So in many ways they face this idea of a a class ceiling and uh, our qualitative um, field work which was done in each of these organisations tried to understand what are the factors uh, driving that, that class ceiling. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. And the the book is absolutely chock full of statistics, some of which you mentioned there. Um, I've just written down a bunch on my laptop because there's there's so many and these are only from like the first few pages of the book but some of the ones which jumped out to me so there's a 16 percent one that you mentioned um but um also in terms of like likelihood of who's going to enter those top professions you know it's got in the book upper middle class people are 12 times likelier to become doctors than working class people um and people with parents who are doctors are 24 times likelier to become doctors and the children of lawyers 17 percent likelier uh, 17 times likelier um and children of people who work in film and television are 12 times likelier um, which is which is staggering, and um, some of the other amazing, in a bad way, statistics um, concern education. I think so. It says that uh, privileged origin people without a degree are more than twice as likely to reach a top job than working class people without a degree. So only twenty percent of working class origin people with a degree go into a top job, but thirty nine percent of similarly educated people from a professional origin do. And even when those people from working class origins do attend those top universities, the Russell Group or whatever, and even when they do receive the highest grades, so firsts and high two ones, um, they are still less likely to be found in top jobs than those from privileged origins uh, who do similarly well. And 64% of people from um, professional origins with first class degrees and from Russell Group unis progress to those top jobs, but only 45% from working class origins with the same achievements do so so it's saying that what, what your research is saying that even when you do really well and you get in on merit that university or whatever and uh, you do fantastically and you do just as well as someone from a privileged or, um, origin or better you're still less likely to ascend up the ladder than they are um and to me, and the the kind of like recurring theme in the, throughout the book, it's refuting the idea that we live in a meritocracy. Um, and I just wondered whether you'd be able to talk a little bit about um, the the meritocracy myth in Britain, and why do you think it is that we believe in this idea of a meritocracy when it is so manifestly untrue? Yeah, it's a good question, Jasper. I mean, I I think that. Um... You know the the idea of of, of meritocracy, um, I think, appeals to to people in a fairly basic way about um, equal opportunity, um, and that you know the idea that um, our our outcomes in life shouldn't be determined by things that are out with our control, and obviously, um, circumstances of our birth. Um, in relation to the resources that our parents have um, is one of those that I think strikes people as, as as being something very clearly out of one's control and so very unfair if it continues to st structure people's outcomes. Um, and I think that, you know, um, people feel very strongly about that and that's why I think you see it across the board politically as a um, as something that you know we want to aspire to as a society it's, uh, it's given very different stripes by those on the left and the right um, I suppose the left would focus more on the issues of the reproduction of privilege as being the sort of focal point of the problem whereas those on the right are more interested in 
in this notion of, of that there is some sort of finite talent that needs to be um, extracted out of those from 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 working class backgrounds, and if we could only unlock that, then you know that would be uh, um, our society's ills sorted. Um, but either way, it's 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 very powerful, and I think that what I know what I noticed in the research, and I don't think this is news to anyone, is that people really in in almost all areas, um, when it comes down to the the the, the sort of areas that they operate in whether that's universities uh, in in a job they they want to believe <laughs> that they're striving in an equal environment and i suppose um the knowledge that that might not be the case is um it's quite sort of destabilizing for people in terms of, of of why they're doing what they're doing um um but i think it's really important that we do disrupt that idea and i suppose that's really what um, a lot, that sort of attack of statistics that the first half of the book is trying to do. It's trying to dislodge that very um, cherished notion of meritocracy that probably most readers come in feeling um, is the case in Britain. And I think, you know, you picked on a number of stats that come out of the, ed the education element. And I think that that's a really sort of important starting point for dislodging this idea because I think people tend to believe... Um, that the education system is the sort of sorting house for um, sort of meritocratic achievement. And okay, there may be all sorts of inequalities of access to education, but you know, once once you prove your 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 worth in academic attainment, then that is a signal that should be um, should propel you um, in lots of different careers. Um, and I think the reality that comes out in a lot of the, the analysis we did is that just isn't the case, that uh, employers um, are not, don't seem to be uh, recognising that that's what the education system is there. They're not rewarding the same thing that the education system is rewarding. Um, and I think, again, you know, that's quite, um, that's quite a challenging thing to get your head around um, but I think, again, is, is a fairly powerful starting point because I think, you know, what people tend to, when I've presented this work on a class pay gap, is they'll say, well, yeah, okay, but that the reason why is because, you know, those from privileged backgrounds tend to uh, achieve more highly. And so, you know, okay, they it may be an issue that they, they're earning more, but it's, it's partly just the result of the fact that they, they get a better education. Um, and that's not that's you know that's part of the story, but it's there's many other drivers, um, and I suppose that's kind of where the book goes in terms of understanding what those drivers are, and um, you know just to mention a few of them here, um, you know we often think about this idea of of the bank of mum and dad as being important in certain ways, you know perhaps to get you uh, um, to help you get an internship. Um, or, or, or to help you, you know, with fees at university or something like that. What's really interesting is that we were seeing that the sort of legacy of the bank of mum and dad in the contemporary era um, really extends um, into quite long periods of people's lives, well into their careers, um, particularly in more precarious industries uh, like, you know, culture and creative industries like television. Um, 
where you know if you have a, um, the insulation um, of knowing that there is money that you can access from your parents if you get into bother if you um, if there is periods that you have out of work um, and this gives you a real uh, a real concrete advantage in terms of um, pursuing the particular career that you want um, regardless of how precarious it might be um, and also taking risks risks um, it, that may have long-term payoffs for your career and whereas you know what we were finding from talking to lots of people from working class backgrounds is that you know in the face of not having that kind of economic security um, blanket they actually often made quite sort of risk averse sort of defensive decisions to go into areas of work that they perhaps were less passionate about but that were more stable um, that had um, a, a sort of a, a salary that they could rely on um, and often though those those areas may be stable but they may well have less prospects for moving up so you know what we see is that you know that idea of the bank of mum and dad can actually be a really powerful driver of this class ceiling effect um, across um, the occupations that we looked at yeah that yeah it's 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 fascinating and also terrifying um and i want to i want to i want to go back to, to to the idea of uh, of education and where we come from because class, class is about where you come from um and all of this can be traced back to our childhoods as you were saying um and and that is also something which you talk about in the book so like um you mentioned childhood um and how wealthier parents can perhaps afford to take more time off um from their jobs uh which means more time to help with homework and organize their kids doing things like sports or music or whatever extracurricular activity it is um, and even if they even if they don't have the time to to um time or ability to take time off work um they are still likelier to have that cultural capital um and at least an awareness of like oh yeah this is something which my kids can do and that they can push for that and that's not as someone who come very much comes from a, a working class low-income background that's not always an awareness which comes or it's not an awareness which comes naturally to, to you it, it is derived from from income and class factors um and yeah, those working class families, uh, particularly today, um, are perhaps working multiple jobs and can't see their kids as much and therefore don't have as much time to be like to, to help with their homework and help their learning and uh, organize extracurricular stuff for them. And I think the kicker for me and the kicker which is like runs throughout the book is that maybe those kids who don't have that opportunity to showcase their talents um, would be just as good or even better than those from the privileged backgrounds who do have that opportunity. And that ties in with what really we're really interested in at the social review, which is that kind of like this idea of like economic democracy, I suppose, and like that like distribution of, of power and access redistribution um, uh, to enable like everyone to be able to showcase their talents and everyone to 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 pursue what they want to pursue um which is of course easier said than done um so in your mind what practical steps do you think that governments and uh, even individuals can take to democratize those forms of access um and occupation so that those barriers those financial and cultural barriers to nurturing talent can be weakened and eventually eradicated 
Just a small question then, uh, Jasper. Um, yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, you know, that you, you've sort of, you, you, you've, you've touched upon the real big structural element here. And I mean, it's a massive question and um, an interesting one to get to get your teeth into. I don't really know where to start. But I think, I think at some level, you know, we have to start by um, trying to think about two things really one is that you know you have to as you mentioned that inequalities um really open up from the day people are born um and they are they accumulate over time in terms of um developmental um sort of inequalities that then obviously manifest and can be justified in any one moment as being um, a sort of natural meritorious difference um, but that when you look back is is rooted in all sorts of forms of advantages and resources that people were able to or their parents were able to deploy on their behalf so I think you know there's something about meaningfully thinking about equalizing uh, uh, developmental opportunities from the get-go in people's lives at the same time um, you mentioned this top issue of cultural capital, which is something that I've worked on for a long time. And I think actually with that one, it's a slightly different strategy. You need to actually, I think, um, undermine or explode the idea that um, certain forms of, of cultural knowledge, um, taste, uh, ways, of, uh, um, ways of being you know, in terms of accent, dress, um, inflection, language, posture, you know, all of these things that tend to um, be connected with notions of, um, of, of polish or poise or classiness or what have you, often misrecognized as legitimate markers of talent. I think you need to start a conversation um, about the fact that those things are fairly arbitrary when you really think about them. They're very often hard to reliably connect to uh, any credible notion of uh, intelligence or ability or work performance. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we, we sort of have to have that type of conversation so that uh, culture isn't able to be used as a sort of weapon of advantage for for the privileged and but that's a very challenging conversation to have you know we have very embedded ideas of what cultural value is in this country and to, to have that conversation you, you 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 have to start from the point of saying well actually we don't think that um you know opera is in any way um culturally superior to uh, musical theater or you know um you know that uh, those sorts of kind of commonly held notions of what cultural value are don't really stand up philosophically. Um, but that's a very challenging conversation um, that has to be had and, and often is one that at a policy level is it, it has to be sort of led at the level of the state and at the level of organisations like the Arts Council who fund and provide um, uh, funding for some forms of culture and not others and uh, or the education system which teaches some forms of culture and leaves out others that's where that those things come in um 
in terms of more specifically the, the, the analysis we were doing in the book and how you might go about making some change at what you might call a meso level, so at an organizational level, not the macro state level, not the micro individual level, but the meso organizational level. I think there's a lot to, to be done there. I think we need to, we need to um, see class origin in a similar way to the way that we see other protected characteristics in this country. We need to routinely measure and monitor um, people's origins in a range of different professions so that we have an understanding that I think we've started in this book and others before us have, have established at, um, at a basic level, but there's still a long way to go, um, that means that class origin is, 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 is part and parcel of, of, of the sort of everyday language of, of, of inclusion uh, in workplaces. Um, so that's a fairly straightforward thing to do. Similarly, you know, this idea of a class pay gap, um, you know, I think you could get to the point where one of the ways that you might force organisations to take it seriously in terms of change might be to mandate at a governmental level that um, that they have to publish their class pay gap in the same way as they've done with uh, gender. And I think, you know, it's not a panacea, it doesn't solve the issue, but it does, I think, hold organisations to account. Um, I think even bolder, uh, and this one I think is, is emerging as a, as a potential policy idea, is to actually make class origin a protected characteristic in law. Um, there's a lot of complexity there that needs to be worked through, but I, for one, would be really interested in exploring that uh, as an option um, so that, you know, we are sort of, there's a compulsion within British society to take this issue seriously um, and that there is some legal basis for that. You touched on some really good policy ideas just then. Um, there's one more policy idea which I just want to throw at you. Um, and when I when I went to a talk on this back in March or February, I think uh, the um, the RSA, um, I asked it and people in the audience laughed. Um, and then you were kind of like, well, eh, I don't know, um, on, on stage. So so I'll ask it again. Um, and Labour have recently passed it into uh, into the, as a manifesto commitment. Um, when we're talking about equalizing um access and 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 class origins um do you think that means abolishing private education yeah so this is uh so this is a very live issue at the moment um and uh, i feel um encouraged at one level that it's now um been put on the political agenda it's something that i've raised at the social mobility commission i feel very strongly that we need to have a conversation about private schools. We need to acknowledge publicly their role in the reproduction of, uh, of not just privilege, but their reproduction of, of our elites in this country, um, which, you know, my work is shown um, not just in the contemporary, but also looking back in the last sort of 120 years, that role is incredibly clear. Um, I personally um, think that it would be a positive kind of symbolic move to um, abolish private schools. I think you'd have to think very carefully and thoughtfully and without sort of um, finger-waving sort of uh, left-wing sanctimony about how you'd actually do that in a way that 
um, was sensitive to um, the people in those schools and um, such like that wasn't too um, disruptive but I think uh, I think it's a it's a it's a positive move um, but I think what is really important to say alongside it is which I think a lot of people have mentioned off the back of Labour's uh, announcement and I think is really key is that there's no point in pretending that that would solve class reproduction um, and you know the simple reality is that if that was the only sort of change being made then um, quite clearly in a society where we we encourage um, uh, um, the sort of um, strategizing around the education system um, middle-class parents that would have sent their kids to private school would um, more aggressively move to areas which had good state schools um, and generally use other resources to give themselves an advantage in the education system so I think if you're going to do that in terms of thinking about private schools you also have to at the same time make changes to um, the state school system and I think you know there really the, the radical idea that would be most uh, most interesting I think in terms of um, access uh, um, and equalizing life chances would be a lottery system um, where people are assigned to schools um, in ways that they can't game um, and that ensure in a statistically necessary way that there is a mix of, of children um, and that you know that's very radical and we're a long way away from that but I would just say it as a caution that you know um, we have to be careful not to um, move towards this idea of abolishing private schools in a kind of I think in a sort of aggressive populist left-wing way that doesn't really recognize what would come in the aftermath and not have our eyes open to the fact that um, if other changes aren't made alongside it um, we still allow uh, the education system to be weaponized. That is a very radical policy and I am going to be thinking about it for the rest of today. Um, one one quick final question um, before you have to go. Um, all the data in uh, the book um, on class in the UK seems to me irrefutable. Um, it draws from a huge sample size um, and I think it's very demonstrably clear that uh, we do have a class ceiling. Um, what do you say to someone who accepts the research but then says, but I don't care, I don't think it's a big deal? Um, <laughs> interesting question. Um, I mean, I think that... Uh, I think that... I think that the thing I would say that I think is something that almost everybody wants to believe and it comes back to this idea of meritocracy is most people want to believe that they uh, deserve um, their success and if you undermine that idea um, they tend to get very defensive um, but and that defensiveness might might uh, manifest is as a way of saying I don't care 
but often that's a sign that actually uh, I care very much. In fact, I'm very threatened by what you're saying. Um, and I suppose in those instances, and I've come up against it quite a lot, um, you try to make them realize it's not about them individually and that it's very hard to ever pass in any individual case what influence uh, you know individual behavior and agency has had over these sorts of more structural aspects but when we see things as we do so systematically unequal um, I think it does threaten the idea that people can um, apportion um, their successes in life to their own agency and hard work um, in a straightforward way and I think that when you start to get people to realize that that there's a sort of it's in their interest to want to tackle this if they really do want to feel that nice fuzzy feeling of deservingness um, then you know that that tends to resonate I think even with those um, on the right who perhaps are not particularly invested in notions of uh, redistribution or, or structural change but they do care about um, notions of, of deservingness I think. Um, Sam this has been absolutely fascinating I could sit and talk, talk to you about this for hours but um, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast if you're listening and you haven't read The Class Ceiling Why It Pays to Be Privileged go and buy it um, it's a fascinating book um, and yeah once again thanks so much Sam. Thank you really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.